Great. Well, as uh, the guys have already said, we're doing a series at the moment called None Like Him, based on this little book by Jen Wilkin. And over the past three weeks, we've been looking at how God is infinite, that he is without beginning, without end, without measure, without limit. We've been looking at how God is incomprehensible. That doesn't mean that we can't understand him at all, but it means that we can never get to the bottom of him. He's uh, different from us. He can't be counted, measured as we humans can. Uh, he's without limit. And then last week we were talking about God being self-existent, that he wasn't created. He is the creator of all things, that he's unique in that way. And this morning we're going to be looking at the theme of God being self-sufficient. And uh, this is the uh, kind of tagline for this morning, taking from Jim Wilkins' book, Our God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. Our God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. Now that is a very big claim to make. And it's also a claim that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it immediately calls into question who we are as human beings and what God is like and what our relationship with him might be. It raises questions like this. Is, isn't the reason that God created us because he needed us? And if he didn't need us, why would he have bothered to create us? And isn't the whole point about relationships that actually you, uh, you find meaning from relationships, but if God doesn't actually need to have a relationship with anybody, what does that say about God? What does, what does that mean if we ignored God? If if we didn't have a relationship with God, would God somehow cease to exist? Would he have meaning if there was no relationship with God? Or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's that, is it that just God made us as some kind of experiment? It's like he's put planet Earth in a kind of cosmic fish tank just to watch what's going on. And he doesn't have, actually have any interest particularly or interaction with us. He's just watching this scientific experiment that's going on. If we say God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing, it raises those kind of questions, and they're, in a sense, reasonable questions. And so we need to unpick this a bit, untangle it a little bit this morning, and hopefully help us to see why it is good news for us to be able to say that God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. Lord, I do pray that you would speak to us this morning. pray that we would see you again for who you are. Lord, pray our eyes would be opened, the eyes of our hearts, our spirits be open to see the truth about what you're like. I pray that for those of us who have known you, followed you, loved you, worshipped you for years, I pray that our eyes would again be opened afresh to see the wonder of who you are, what you're like, and what that means for us. And I pray for those here this morning who've never seen that, that your eyes, their eyes might be opened for the first time. They'd see the truth of who God really is, and that would be good news for them, as it is for those of us who've already experienced that and known that. Amen. Back in the 1970s, when I was a young lad, there was a big rage for self-sufficiency. Most popular TV program was The Good Life with uh, Tom and Barbara, a suburban couple who turned their suburban garden into a little small holding. And I remember as a young boy, my parents and all my parents' friends uh, digging up their gardens, planting lots of potatoes, growing lots of cabbages. There was a kind of a big move for self-sufficiency, which probably came out of all kinds of fears about the Cold War and what would happen if the bomb drops and you need to look after yourself and just the general economic chaos of the 1970s with hyperinflation and everything else. People thought we need to sort things out, we need to look after ourselves, we'll dig up the grass, we'll plant some potatoes, we'll stick some sprouts in, we'll be self-sufficient. And um, 
That desire for self-sufficiency actually reflects a, a human desire to be autonomous. And that, of course, is an important part of being a human being. Actually, it's an important part of being an adult, that if you're going to be an adult, if you're going to be mature, then you need to be self-sufficient in some way. You want to be responsible for yourself and autonomous to some degree. That's how adults are meant to be. Uh, children are not like that. Children are dependent upon adults. That's why we talk about children being dependents because they are. They're meant to be dependent, they are dependent, and part of the role of responsible parents is to teach their children to take responsibility so that dependent children can themselves become independent, responsible adults, and then teach their children about responsibility, and their children can become independent, responsible adults too. That's how it's meant to be. And if we get to adulthood, and rather than having learnt responsible adult behaviours, if we remain childish as adults, well, that's a big problem. If we're the kind of people who never really grow up, that's a problem. It's a problem for us and it's a problem for everyone else in our lives as well. We're meant to aspire to adulthood. We're meant to aspire to maturity. That's a good aim. That's how life is meant to be. We're meant to be self-sufficient in that sense. Uh, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who's getting a lot of attention at the moment, and talking about this kind of stuff and attracting a lot of interest, especially from young men who seem to be particularly responding to this message, which is sort yourself out, take responsibility, grow up. And this is one of his kind of lines, clean your room up and sort yourself out, bucko. If you can't even sort your own room out, what chance have you got of making any success of life? Get your room tidied up, sort your life out, grow up, take responsibility, pick up a load, carry it, be an adult, make life better for you and better for those around you. Now, that's all good, but there's a big difference between responsible maturity, cleaning your room up and sorting yourself out, and a self-sufficiency, which actually doesn't reflect maturity, but undermines, really, who we are as human beings. You see, a, a responsible maturity, a real adult maturity, recognizes that there are still needs that we cannot meet from within ourselves, that we don't have the resources in ourselves to meet and to fix. And somebody who tries to be entirely self-sufficient seeks to exist independent of all else, other ties and claims and bonds and actually all other responsibilities. But this is what we're claiming today. Only God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. <coughs> And you and I are not God. And so if we try and live like God, if we try and live entirely self-sufficient, self-existent, we're going to get ourselves into trouble because our needs are obvious. They're very fundamental to us. We need sleep and we need shelter and we need food and we need relationships. We can't exist in a vacuum. No man is an island. And if we try and live as if we are independent, self-sufficient, life quickly gets chaotic. You try living without sleep. I mean, it's such a basic thing. You go three days without sleep and send you, literally send, can send you psychotic. And if you struggle with sleep patterns, if you don't have regular sleep patterns, where well, it can leave you just exhausted emotionally and psychologically, physically, it, we're dependent, we need sleep. Without sleep, life gets chaotic. We need shelter. 
kind of a very definition of a chaotic life is to not have shelter, to be out on the streets, to be living rough. That's a terrible place to be. We need food. Yeah, you can survive for days, weeks, six weeks or so without food, but pretty soon you'll die. We're not vacuums. We're not islands. We need relationships. If you try and say, I'm going to be entirely self-sufficient, I'm going to cut myself off from relationships, I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to having relationships with other people and all the potential complexity and pain that involves. Well, that doesn't help, that doesn't fix. That actually, that again will turn you into a very isolated, a very lonely, a very chaotic, very messed up person. We, we are dependent. We're meant to be responsible. We're meant to be mature, but we can never be self-sufficient. And so this is the kind of truth claim I want to make this morning and for us to unpick and to talk around. It's this, that to live the good life, the good life, not just the life that Tom and Barbara Good tried to live in their suburban garden, Surbiton, growing potatoes and keeping chickens, but the real good life, a, a life which is ordered and peaceful and grateful and hopeful, that's what the good life means, then we need to submit our dependency, we need to recognize our dependency to God's self-sufficiency, because God alone is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. God's didn't create us because he needs us. We need to get that clear, but we do need him. But God didn't create us just as a kind of an experiment to watch on from a distance. No, God is deeply involved in the world he made, intimately involved in the lives of the people he has created. Let's turn to scripture and uh, See what the Word of God has to say to this. It's going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today. It's on page 1181 in these Bibles. And going to be looking at uh, verses 10 down to verses 19, verse 19. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He was, we think, in prison in Rome at the time that he wrote it. And he's writing to his friends in a church in a city called Philippi. And uh, seeking to encourage them and help them. We've talked through this letter before. It's a great letter. It's about joy, and uh, Paul's instruction, encouragement to his friends in Philippi is to find joy, to rejoice, and he sets out how to do that, and these closing instructions from Paul will help us today as we think about the self-sufficiency of God. First thing we're going to see is that we are dependent on God and other people. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, the Apostle Paul, as he describes here, has known times of need and he's known times of plenty. He's been hungry and he's been fed. And in both those situations, he's always been dependent upon God and upon other people. He's not encouraging here a kind of a detachment from the reality of life. He's not saying that these things are unreal or unimportant. There is a real difference between hunger and being well-fed. That's a, a real 
tangible, meaningful difference. There's a profound difference between having enough to eat and not having enough to eat. And Paul has experienced both of those situations. And in both of those situations, he's remained dependent upon God. Now, we can't always fix the problems of life. We need interventions which will help us in the problems that we have, in the issues that we face. We tend to think of interventions as being for the extreme cases. We talk about interventions when somebody is particularly ill or has got particular psychological problems. They need a particular intervention to try and help them and break them out of the cycle that they're in and bring them into a place of health. But the reality is that all of us live with the benefit of daily interventions, of other people intervening in our lives in a way which demonstrates how dependent we are and enables us to live lives which are hopefully healthy and fruitful. And the structures and provisions of our society do that all the time. We have the daily intervention of shops with food in them. We have the intervention of government which maintains law and order and empties the bins and opens schools and maintains hospitals. We, we have these interventions which are going on the whole time which enable us to carry on with our lives. Without those interventions in place, we would quickly discover how needy we are. It might be that we don't feel our need very much, that's to a large extent, because there's so many interventions happening in our life every day which supply the needs we would otherwise have. Now, Paul recognizes this, and he's looking for intervention ultimately from God. And so he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this, all, all what? Well, what Paul says he can do is he can handle the times of plenty. When there's lots of resources, lots of stuff, lots of provision, he can handle that. He doesn't get swept off his feet by that because he's still depending upon God. He's looking to God for strength. But equally, he's able to handle times of need without falling into desperation and despair because, again, in times of need, he's still looking to God for strength. He's dependent upon God. And Paul really has known times of need, and so it's good that these Philippians are, as he says, concerned for him. And their concern for him has been practically demonstrated. It's been made tangible because they've sent him a load of money, which is helping him in his time of need. Now, if they hadn't sent the money, Paul makes it clear, he would have still have been content because he would have still been depending upon God. But them sending the money helps him out of his need, and that's good. And Paul's not embarrassed about that. He's not embarrassed to receive their help. He's not embarrassed to receive their offering, which is going to help him and has helped him in previous years. Now, what this shows to us is that we need to be ready to depend upon God and upon other people too. And it's amazing how, we, how resistant we can be to that, to depending upon God and depending upon other people. We, we imagine that we're self-sufficient, that we can just look after ourselves. And the reality is that really we can't. Joan Wilkin very helpfully sets out some signs for us that this might be a problem for us. First, signs that we don't really rely upon God. If uh, there's prayerlessness in our lives, that's a good evidence that we're not really relying on God. If we're not coming to God and praying, 
Well, that shows that we're not really leaning on him. We're not, as Paul says, looking on him to give us strength. If we never pray, you're not, not really depending upon God at all. Forgetfulness is another sign that we aren't really relying on God. When we forget all that God has done for us, when we forget how faithful he's been to us, we forget the story of what he's done in saving his people and building his church. Uh, if we get angry in times of trial, that can be a sign that we're not relying upon God. If we face trials, and we all do, and our response to that is anger, that can be a sign that we're not really relying on God. It can be a sign that Actually, all it does is it, we're, we're angry because it's exposing our vulnerability, our weakness. I can't fix this problem. This is happening to me, and I can't sort it out. I'm angry about that rather than turning to God and depending upon him. We don't really believe what it says in the book of James, that these trials, through trials, that we learn perseverance, that actually God can sanctify us. He can work good things in us through times of difficulty. If there's a lack of conviction of personal sin... That's a good sign that we're not really relying on God. If we're never conscious, actually, of doing things which we shouldn't have done and bringing them to God and asking for his forgiveness, if there's no consciousness of that, well, that's a good sign that we're not relying on God. And these things are all easy to do. They're all easy to slip into. It's easy to slip into prayerlessness and forgetfulness and anger in trial and lack of conviction of personal sin because we just get caught up in life and we can forget to lean on God. We need to be dependent upon him like we need to see that we can do all things how through the strength that he gives it's also a problem if we don't rely on other people there's some signs that Jen Wilkins gives avoidance of Christian community if we don't make efforts to make genuine authentic relationships with other believers well that's a sign that we're not ready and willing to rely on other people and have them help us concealment. This is when we kind of selectively update about ourselves. We don't really tell the truth, but we present a false picture where we try and make ourselves look better than we actually are rather than being honest about our weaknesses, our sins, our needs, a, a lack of accountability. When we think we can handle everything ourselves, when we don't ask others to speak into our lives, where we're not happy to receive feedback from other people about how we're doing. That's a sign that we're not ready, not willing to rely on others. A lack of humility. This is when actually we're not willing to receive help from other people. Sometimes it can, this can be so twisted around, we think actually humility is just to plod on your own and do it on your own. But actually that can be a sign of pride. True humility is ready to receive help from others. A lack of humility, a lack of willingness to receive help can be a sign of our lack of reliance on others. And then exhaustion, because if we try and do it all in our own power, then where we end up is not fulfilled, not peaceful, but actually exhausted. We need to be people who, like Paul, look to God for our strength and also are very happy to receive the help of others. We're dependent ultimately on God, also on other people. And if we're going to be wise, we need to live that way. Second thing is that God is pleased when we help others in need. Verse 14. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul had been in need, and the church in Philippi had sent him money to help him. And this had happened on a number of occasions. And that was good. The Philippians did well to share in Paul's trouble. It was the gifts from Philippi that enabled Paul to continue in full-time ministry as he traveled around. And now that he's in prison, it's the gifts of the Philippians which are enabling him to support himself in that place. It's generosity on the part of the Philippians. And Paul says that this is going to be credit in their account. That as they've been generous to him, they're going to receive credit from God. That as they give, they will receive. And so he talks about their gift being a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice. Because what Paul sees here is that while the gift has been given to him, ultimately it's an act of worship of God. The Philippians in helping Paul actually are worshipping Jesus. And God responds to that. God loves that. That's why it's a acceptable sacrifice, a fragrant offering. There's some principles here that we can see about giving, that it's right to thank the one who firstly enables the gift. The reason the Philippians have been able to give anything to Paul to help him is because God has enabled them to give. God has supplied for them that they can supply for Paul. That's why Paul says, I do all things through him who gives me strength. Ultimately, it all comes from God. So We thank the one who enables the gift. When we give, we give thanking God who's enabled us, helped us, provided for us, so that we can give. Next, it's right to thank the humans who give it. This is what Paul does. He's grateful. He's not indifferent about the help the Philippians offer him. He's not saying, oh, I don't need that. No, he's grateful for it, and he thanks them. And it's right to thank people when they give. It's right to be thankful to people. I'm thankful to those of you who give here at Gateway, support the ministry of this church. It's necessary. Without that giving, we wouldn't be able to continue as we do. The next thing, next principle is to recognize that ultimately all the gifts that we give actually are, are given back to God. That God gives us the stuff to give and then we kind of give it back to him. That it is what we talk about as a gifted response. It is that thing where like a parent, you get a present from your child and the only way they can give you a present is because you've given them the money to buy it in the first place. It's a gifted response to how it works but as a parent you're glad to receive what your child buys you even though you've given them the means to buy it and when we give it's like that. We're giving to God but actually we're giving what he has given us already. Next principle about giving is that God loves it when we give because human generosity reflects his generosity. God is good. God is generous. And he loves it when his people are generous because his people are called to reflect him. And so what the Philippians have done is good in supporting Paul. This is good. God is pleased with it. There's credit to their account because they're reflecting what God is like. And then the fifth principle about giving is this, that there is an expectation or there should be an expectation that God 
will bless in response to the gift. Paul's expectation for the Philippians is that they will be blessed. And as we give, we should expect an expectation of blessing. We can be very nervous about this. We can be nervous about falling into the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a terrible distortion of the gospel, which is sadly all too prevalent in many parts of the world, in many churches. It's a kind of a slot machine view of God. You give £100, pull the lever, and God will give you £200 back. That's not how it works. That's not what Scripture talks about. But Scripture does talk about us reaping as we sow about God pressing the measure down and it flowing over and falling into our laps. There is a spiritual principle that we reap as we sow, that as we are generous, God is more generous. There's a circle of generosity that develops. And we shouldn't be nervous of that, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that, and probably we need to push more into that, that our danger here isn't falling into the prosperity gospel, but we might be more in danger actually of missing the blessing that could be ours because we don't recognize enough that if we're generous, God will be more generous to us. I was at a gathering with uh, Terry Virgo, who many of you know, a couple of weeks back, and he was talking about this, and Terry is someone who himself has demonstrated incredible generosity over the years and seen amazing things happen in terms of raising huge sums of money. And he was saying how, looking back over his ministry, and Terry's now in his mid-70s, how he feels that actually he hasn't expressed this enough, that... We are meant to give in expectation of receiving a blessing. We do. We don't give in order to pull a slot machine. We don't say, I'm going to give £100, God, would you give me £200? That's not how it works. But we do expect God to bless us. As we give, there's a, it's a spiritual act. It's a gifted response. It's giving to God what he's already given us. It's an act of generosity. It's an act of worship. It helps other people. It helps the mission. And we expect God to bless that because God loves all those things. And we probably need to lean into that more. And certainly as we move forward with our 2020 vision for plans we have for this building, we're going to have to lean into this more. It's a stretch in our giving, anticipating God's blessing upon us as we do. God is pleased when we help others in need. God was pleased with the Philippians for the way they were helping Paul. And then third thing is that God can meet all our needs. Verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's a, what a verse. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, we do have needs. Paul had needs, I have needs, you have needs, and we can't meet them all ourselves. We, like Paul, can learn to be content whatever the circumstances because we're depending on God. He gives us strength. We look to God and ask God to meet the needs that we have. This morning, in your need, whatever that is today, and every one of us would have walked in here this morning with some kind of need, greater or lesser, something that's burning in our minds the whole time, occupying us, or just that little niggling thing in the back of our thoughts. All of us have needs. Are we looking to God to meet them? God is rich. He can supply our needs. And Paul's confident assertion is that God will meet the needs of the Philippians according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's his expectation. That's his desire for the Philippians. 
That should be our desire for ourselves as well, that we would know more of the riches of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That we'd know more of God's blessing in our lives, more of his grace in our lives, that we have a greater sense of the glory of God, that we'd be more amazed at him, our eyes would be opened, that as we're doing this series Sunday by Sunday, thinking what God is like, that our eyes would be opened to see the glory of God in, in a new way, to see his riches, his vastness, his greatness, his glory, to see him. That should be our desire. God is able to meet all our needs. The claim I started with this morning was this, that to live the good life, an ordered, peaceful, grateful, hopeful life, we need to submit our dependency to God's self-sufficiency. That happens when we recognize the reality of our limits. God is unlimited. We are limited. Jen Wilkin makes this comment about fasting. It's no wonder the Bible commands fasting from food. Fasting reminds us quickly of our need, of our utter lack of self-sufficiency. It's an express lane to relearning our limits. We can go through life at times unaware of the needs that we have because we get supplied with so much. Fasting is one way in which we're brought face-to-face with the reality of our limits, the reality of our needs. As Richard said already on Friday this week, we're again calling the church to pray and to fast. We do that partly because of this, to say we recognize how limited we are, and fasting reminds us of that. And we come to you, the God who is rich, the God who is able to supply all our needs, the God who is able to make all things abound to us, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We come to you and look for your supply. We recognize that you are sufficient for us in all things, that your strength gives us us strength, that we can look to you and find hope and help in our needs. You know, God didn't create us because he needs us, but we do need him. Paul said these things to the Philippians in the book of Acts 17. We we read about Paul being in in Athens and saying something similar. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. If our kind of response to the claim that God is self-sufficient is, well, surely God needs us or we wouldn't be here. And if we didn't pay attention to God, somehow he'd cease to exist. It's, a, it's a, got things totally the wrong way around. It's like, would the sun cease to shine if we didn't ever look at it? Apparently, there in uh, Moscow in December, there are six minutes of sunshine in the whole month. How depressing. <laughs> Imagine living in Moscow, six minutes of sunshine in the whole of December. Did the sun cease to shine? No. And we might say to God, well, we'll ignore you, God. We're just going to crack on on our own. We've got things pretty well set up here. We can fix it. We can do it. God doesn't cease to be God. And our need for him doesn't cease either. But the really good news is that God didn't create us as an experiment. This world and your life and my life isn't just like some kind of cosmic aquarium keeper performing an experiment, seeing how things play out. No, God is 
deeply involved in the world that he made. That's why Paul can say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Because God was intervening directly in Paul's life to give him strength. It's why Paul can say that God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Because God does meet our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And it's because of Christ Jesus. And the miracle is this, that Christ experienced human needs. God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. But God in Christ put himself into the place where he experienced human need, where he knew what it's like to go without sleep. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to go without shelter. And he knew what it was to live in a world where relationships get broken and fractured. God in Christ has experienced human neediness. God in Christ made himself dependent. Wow. And so when Paul says to the Philippians, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, he's pointing the Philippians and he's pointing us to the one who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, the one who knows what it is to be dependent, the one who knows what it is to be needy, but the one who now reigns in glory and is able to supply us with all things. God doesn't need us, but he's not indifferent to us. God loves us. He loves us enough to have sent his only son to live amongst us and to die for us, that we might be brought into life in God. Our God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. God will meet all our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's bring our needs to Jesus. Let's come to him, lay our needs before him, and look to him for strength and help. Amen? Let's worship.